So with the first couple episodes of the show, we focused on veteran acts that had been around for a while and they were kind of playing out the string when this big shift happened at AOR. But today we're going to be talking about a band that was still starting out in the early 90s. Matt Wardlaw is not with us for this one. He's celebrating his mother's birthday with her, which is adorable. But we are in great hands with a pair of special guests. First, we have my dear friend, the reformed music writer, Michael Parr, who our listeners already know is the man who wrote and recorded our show's theme song. Say hi, Michael. Hi, guys. And also joining us is the one and only Maura Johnston, who's had a huge influence on my writing career over the last 15, 16 years. Uh, if you've read anything I've written about pop culture in that time span, there is a pretty good chance it was because of Maura. She was a major early booster for the old Hefito blog back in 2005, 2006. And she was later kind enough to feature my writing at the Village Voice and her own Maura magazine. And this, I think, is the first time we've ever had a voice conversation in that entire span, which is shameful. Um, I, I, I have to repent. Uh, anyway, Maura, thank you. Say hi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. We we are, of course, talking about Mr. Big. They released their second album in March of 91, titled Lean Into It. Let's just dive into it. This is a group that, for me, their, their, their moment in the sun was almost kind of like a temple of the dog moment where they happened to have a record that had been out for a little while and then something else happened on the charts with another group and i have to think that somebody at atlantic was like we have one of these let's let's make it a single to be with you is you know the big hit was that was released late 91 correct it was released in it was actually kind of an accident because what happened was the label had been pushing lucky this time which is another track off of lean into it that is very like classic mid-tempo AOR. Like it was co it was written by this longtime session man, Jeff Paris, and a radio programmer in Lincoln, Nebraska, just started playing to be with you and was nuts for it. And then other radio stations started following suit and Atlantic was like, oh, maybe this is maybe this is the way that we should go. And I mean it was very of the moment, you know, I mean with more than words by extreme being so successful with um you know the sort of unplugged boom was in its like peak period where you know the, they had the Bon Jovi thing at the VMAs in 89 and then the show started a couple of months later and then unplugged was becoming sort of like a badge of honor and as a result like you had this whole thing where it was like well even Mr. Big who you know were made up of like shredders who you know this album opens with like both the guitar and bass player using drills to sort of like aid their quicksilver playing. Like, but then they could show that they could also unplug and get back to the bare bones basics of a good pop song and great harmonies. And every time I hear to be with you, I mean, it's been 30 years and I still sing along with it every <laughs> time I hear it. It's been stuck in my head all week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. The, I didn't know that Nebraska story. I, I, I miss those those stories. I feel like there's probably a dozen, right? Where there's, you know, just some yeah. DJ. It makes I, I, I assumed that the story behind this was much more cynical than that. I really figured somebody in Atlantic got they were like, oh, extreme. Okay, we can Yeah, yeah, totally. No, I did too. And then I found an interview from uh, 
with Paul Gilbert, the guitarist in 1992, where he then compared himself to George Harrison from the Beatles um, and was like, nice. well, George Harrison was 22 when he hit number one and I'm 25. So, you know, I'm doing all right. So <laughs> in his defense, Paul Gilbert's a, 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 a pretty quirky guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you have to be in order to come up with his drill techniques for guitar. It was well, and I think I was going to say, I think the drill thing, it's worth noting that he did it first. Yes, he did. Before Eddie. Before Eddie. Who did Before it? Before Eddie. Albeit they did it much differently. The 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 technique of figuring out to put three picks on the end of a drill bit and hold it just far enough away from your strings to be able to play it without actually destroying your guitar is uh, pretty inventive. I have zero memory of knowing that Mr. Big even existed prior to to be with you, but they were sort of a super group. Yeah. So I, I think for me, it was... So if I bring my head back, I was I, I was fully in... So 90, 91, I was two years into playing guitar, which means I was two years into devouring every single issue of guitar for the practicing musician that came out. And in the front of that, every single issue, there was a, a page of these records and it was shrapnel records. And it was every young shredder who could, you know, play fast enough for Mark, Mike Varney to say, yeah, I'll put you on a record. Paul Gilbert obviously was one of those. I know uh, in a previous episode, we talked about, you guys talked about Jason Becker. He's another one. Marty Freeman, who went on to play with Megadeth was another blue Saraceno, Richie Kotzen, who ended up in, Bigster Big Big. at some point. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Basically, you know, it was almost like uh, it was almost like opening up to David Lee Roth's uh, uh, wish list. (laughs) Because essentially, you know, that's I need someone to replace Eddie. Who do I have? Oh, I have one of these guys. Okay, and that's that's essentially what happened with them. You know, Billy was done with David Lee Roth, and I think it was okay. You know, I did this, and I played with Vi, and I've played with all these other massive guitar players. And he went to Mike Barney and said, well, who do you have? And Paul Gilbert had recently blown up racer X and was looking for, you know, his, his next gig. And that's where the magic happened. And their first record, I mean, pound for pound, they got lumped in with the hair metal stuff, which is very unfortunate because that was never them. I mean, Let's face it, not one of those dudes is pretty enough to pull that off. Um, <laughs> but, but musically, I mean, Billy Sheehan is a monster bass player. Nobody plays like that guy. He essentially plays like he is a lead guitarist. Musically, um, his techniques, you know, right down to he's got scalloped frets on all his bases because that's how hard he plays. And that's, he's used to playing lead. You add those two together and it, you know, it formed a very tight group. And then the funny thing is both of those guys sing really well too. So you kind of put all these things, all these piece parts together and it made for what ended up being with Eric Martin and Pat Torpley, like a really super group of these amazing longtime studio rats or, 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 you know, side guys who could all 
do it all. Yeah. And one of the interesting things to me about their formation, it ties in a little bit with, with what, what Morris said about the Nebraska DJ. It's a, a kind of a thing that doesn't really happen as much anymore. These guys were all regionally yeah. very successful and could yeah. not break through. You know, Sheehan, huge regional star in, I think, Buffalo? Rochester. Rochester. Okay. Um, Eric Martin, <laughs> you know, big... Upstate New York. Barry, a guy, kind of a soundtrack mainstay and a guy whose name came up anytime some band lost its lead singer. Yep. <laughs> and then Torpy was, of course, Belinda Carlisle's drummer. And, uh, you know, that <laughs> always leads directly to the big time. I don't know. It, if, for a super group, you know, they weren't like, they weren't Asia. These guys were not mainstream household names, but they'd all developed their own thing and it all came together for this Mr. Big. But Michael, you clearly were aware of Mr. Big at the first time. Oh, album. yeah. I, I had the first album. They were, you know, Paul Gilbert's a guitar hero. So he's one of those you watch them and you're like, I don't have enough hours in the day to play that much to be able to play like that. So I'll enjoy watching you do it. <laughs> Maura, when did they come across your radar? I know that, that you've got a deep well of history with this type of music. Yeah, I, I, I remember very well seeing the video for Addicted to That Rush, which was a single off of their first self-titled album. It was a Headbangers Ball mainstay. When it was out in '89, I want to yeah, say. Yeah, I think it's '89. And my friends and I, who were we didn't play guitar, but we were in orchestra together, and so we did appreciate any artists that you know really leaned into, no pun intended, their musicianship. And so I remember, like a friend of mine, who we were the lead, you know, the lead stand in the viola section of our school orchestra. My friend Sandy. We were very big fans of Mr. Big. She was more into the, them a little bit more than I was. And then um, I saw them open for Rush on tour. So You don't th- get that gig unless you can play. Yeah. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So yeah, so I was, you know, and, and I was lucky in high school in that I worked at a, I worked at a bakery next door that was two doors down in a strip mall from a CD store. And they, um, I lived so you get paid and you walk two doors pretty down. Pretty much. And, and yeah. And <laughs> the thing was, they, they were a big UCD store because I grew up on Long Island and I didn't realize this at the time, but so many people who were writing for like CMJ and other trade pubs, when they got their promos, they would just, you know, take yep. them to <laughs> NYCD on Broadway in Hicksville. And, uh, I would get paid in cash and Sunday afternoons were always slow. So I would spend an hour. Just going through everything. <laughs> um, and, you know, Headbangers Ball was the night before. So that was like how I assembled my shopping list back then. That's, uh, I miss doing that. I miss. I do too. And I'd also forgotten how pissed off a lot of those labels. And I think even some of the artists were about critics doing that. Supplementing the old income by taking an armload of cutouts to the, to the yeah. <laughs> So you appreciate the musicianship. When I listened to Lean Into It for the first time in years this week to, to prep for this, I was reminded of a saying that I used to hear a lot during my studio days, which was that you can either be 
a fantastic songwriter or you can be a fantastic musician and you cannot be both in most cases. So I wonder how you guys feel about the songwriting, I guess setting aside to be with you is, is kind of an outlier, but those first couple of records, how, do you think that these guys set themselves apart as as songwriters in a uh, an increasingly crowded genre? Well, I think that Green Tinted 60s Mind certainly does. And that was a Gilbert composition. And I feel like, it, I mean, it was very in tune with a lot of what was going on at the time with like the 20th anniversary of Woodstock and the late 60s mm-hmm. revivalism and like, you know, Enough's Enough, who another band <laughs> that was wrongly slotted into the hair metal genre when they just wanted to be the next cheap trick. But like <laughs> that also, you know, they were also like emblazoned with peace signs and everything. And I feel like there was this kind of, idea that hard rock bands doing power pop were 60s revivalists even though that's kind of off given the trajectory of when power pop was popular but because the 60s and the beatles and that was sort of when they like glommed together so you had you know that weird not entirely correct association but i think green city sixth mind is a great example of how good and strong the songwriting by these members can be and i one thing that did surprise me about this record is that it's so bluesy. I, mm. I had forgotten about that. I think because I was just so marinated in that at the time. And like, that was such a, that was such a thing for all of the, you know, for every like hard rock band, whether they deserve to be lumped under hair metal or not, they did. They definitely leaned on blues, you know, taking like Aerosmith's cues in a way. But I was, that was something that really surprised me was how often the songs had those like big swaggery, but down without bump bump, you know. Like <laughs> I would tend to think that some of that is to do with Eric Martin. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Like the songs that I noticed that on had his, a lot of them had his writing credits on them. He definitely has a strong. There's that component in his vocal. He, he's a he's a blues shouter. In fact. Mm, this takes nothing away from Eric Martin, but when I listen to those records, I kind of just want him to stop yelling at me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but he, he speaks at a shout and you can tell. <laughs> you can tell. No, I think, I think it, it's funny because if you look at what came before, what came after, I mean, Paul Gilbert, technically proficient in probably anything he wants to do, not a blues guitar player. <laughs> like, not even a little bit. He definitely falls, you know, in that other alien world of shreddery. But he also, more, I know you brought up the Green Tinted 60s Mind, which I think is the, that is the single off this record, more, even more than To Be With You, that was like, wait, all right. That's coming from somewhere else, like a like a uh, an acoustic ballad. Yeah, that's that you kind of expect it, right? Every band had to have some form of ballad, whatever it be. You know, it was becoming less powery and more ballady. But the the green tinted sixty mind with the reverse guitars and all the backward masking and just that very Beatlesque feel to it that was the one that in my mind was like okay to draw the parallel much like extreme 
you know, extreme had, they had the funk and the horns and the R and B Mr. Big had this like power pop Beatlesque thing that was always kind of bubbling under and bubbling in the back, especially on the, especially on the, on the stuff that Gilbert was more involved in Yeah, from a writing perspective. And you hear it in the vocal melodies as well. Absolutely. I mean, the vocal harmonies rather, you know, like the, like the, the harmonies are just very, prominent in a lot of their songs which i think is an interesting thing that sets them apart from a lot of their peers yeah like you said michael uh gilbert and sheehan can sing martin can sing like they were they were blessed with uh yeah a lineup that could that could do that and not just and not just the like the gang vocals of the day because i mean let's face it like every every group (laughs) had the you know, we're all going to stand in the booth around the mic and shout at it. Like, right. But, yeah. but they actually like, they built stacked harmonies and you were like, and, and to be with you obviously is the one where you're like, Whoa, like I didn't realize that they could do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And it was, and to the point, and I, I'll draw the extreme reference again. Right. So extreme, it was the duet, right. It was, it was, you know, and Gary here, it was like, Whoa, this is a whole, like, this is a whole group and each one of them is, you know, you can clearly hear and, and, and credit to the guys that recorded and mixed this too, because you can clearly hear every voice. Yeah. And, and if you know what some of them sound like afterwards, like I probably couldn't pick pick Pat or Billy out of a, out of a lineup uh, vocally, but I know what Paul sounds like. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's Paul. (laughs) There's a clear, extreme parallel but i also want to point to another band on atlantic that maybe this is going a little too far but another group of guys that could really play and started out around the same time and also saw their momentum completely derailed by what happened in 91 talking about winger yeah absolutely yeah definitely Yeah, and that's, I think that's a that's a another very good very good comparison. And thinking in terms of shredders, all the same, right? right? You know, guys that could sing, all of them could sing, all of them could play. You know, top notch. I would even go as far as to say that from a songwriting perspective, I'd give Winger the edge just because their songwriting was like insane. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think I would too. Even at the time, it was hard for me to really get into Mr. Big. Everything that you guys are saying here, I think is 100% correct. They did have things that really set them apart, but I don't know. Like I own Lean Into It, listened to it a little bit, then stopped. I mean, I don't know. Do do you guys think that the Mr. Big was that, that they were victims of timing? Do you think that they would have had a different tra- trajectory if if not for what happened at the format? Or do you think that they were destined either way to, to be um, thought of as one-hit wonders? It's a good question because, I mean, when I was listening to this record, you know, like Lucky This Time, which was the single that, that the single that wasn't kind of, so to speak, <laughs> like it's, it, it is such a classic kind of like, third song in the 10 song <laughs> marathon jam you know and even just take my heart which i feel is such a on the one hand it's like what would happen if to be with you was actually plugged in song yeah but on the other hand like it had that 
it has these interesting wrinkles to it, like the pre-chorus and the production on the verses. Like it actually kind of made, like it was kind of like a perfect adult contemporary song in a lot of ways. Like it reminded me of um, how Babyface has talked about how he's really influenced by R&B of like the 80s and early 90s. And I was like, what if Babyface sang this song? Which I thought was a really, which was an unexpected <laughs> reaction. But um, I think that, you know, I, I mean, one thing is that after the success of To Be With You, they put out Bump Ahead a couple of years later, and that had their Wild World cover. And I think that that was very much the attempt to be like, hey, remember these guys? Well, they mm-hmm. did it again. And I think it did okay at Adult Contemporary Radio, if I recall it, I think correctly. just squeaked into the top 40 on the Hot 100, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I do think that, like, you know, and I think Extreme is a good, another, once again, a good parallel here is, like, I think that their other songs were probably too, a little too hard for, you know, a, the AC crossover that would that would make them not seem like a one hit wonder in the eyes of the populace. Because I think that's a big reason. Like Green to Easy Mind did okay on radio, if I recall correctly, and I remember it was all over MTV. Like I, I just remember that video so well. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Just Take My Heart. Like That's one I think Diane Warren could have heard that and thought, did I write that? Yeah, yeah, yeah it really is, I, you know? <laughs> but also what's interesting, we're talking about how they did well on radio with various things. They, after Lean Into It, you know, Wild World did okay, but they fell off a fucking cliff. Even at rock radio, they couldn't get it, nothing. Nothing happened for them after that. Nothing charted at rock radio after that, which is really interesting to me. Ah, yeah. We're going to get there in a second. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We'll get there. We'll get there. But, you know, they. I think with some of these bands, you have a a hit with a ballad and you sacrifice some credibility with rock fans. I don't really think that was the... I don't know. Maybe it was the case with Mr. Big. There is definitely... and, And I remember this, you know, and you can... You can go down a long list, right? Skid Row, who was not a hair band. Like, right. Skid Row was a heavy, heavy band. Yeah. Who just happened to write yeah. really, really good ballads. Yeah. <laughs> and mid-tempo songs. And then Extreme is good. I, Winger, I think, headed for a heartbreak. I think about that song specifically. Yeah. That song is like, what, six and a half minutes long and has two minutes of solo at the end and nobody cuts that solo. Yeah. (laughs) There is no edit where you don't get to hear that entire guitar solo at the end. So like, but Winger was a joke. Eventually, yeah. Winger was was what Stuart wore because they weren't as cool as Metallica. But musician-wise, all of that-wise, like they were probably light years. (laughs) And then, you know, uh, we all know what happened Metallica anyway. They recorded a ballad and everyone started loving them anyway. I mean, do you think part of it was just that, like, everybody kind of, you know, was really embarrassed by everything that had to do with pop rock of the, you know, that was popular on the Dial MTV era, kind of like the way that yeah. the mall emo era also got like washed away <laughs> in the populace. And now it's coming back on TikTok. But like at the same time, it's like, you know, this this kind of like catchy rock and roll that has like big choruses and appeals to appeals across genders and appeals to I across do feel ages. like, you know, it's it's been interesting just seeing how 
that territory in within mainstream rock has been ceded in a, over the past 20 years to like country in such mm. a big way. And I think yeah. that with the alt rock rise and with just the, you know, the apocryphal Janie Lane story about when he went to Columbia and like the, the picture of cherry pie had been replaced by the picture of, I think it was dirt by yeah. Alice in Chains. And I think that there was just this kind of cultural, like, uh, reaction yeah. where, you know, there was nothing that a lot of these bands could have done. And the bands that just kept on doing what they were doing and not like trying out industrial. Although I will say that some of those Motley Crue, like alt songs are, are decent, but like, I think that there was no, like there, there, there was no way for them to win. Yeah. I mean, obviously, clearly this whole shift in popular taste is very fascinating to me even now, but yeah, you look, it's yeah. like a Garden of Eden moment, you know, where like the entire rock audience realized that they were naked and that they'd been listening to <laughs> prom <laughs> ballads for the last 50. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to me. Yeah. I, 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 I talk about this constantly, just like a lot of these rock acts were older than my parents, but they were singing songs that were geared toward people my age. And nobody thought twice about it until Nirvana came along. And then all of a sudden, everybody realized that it was kind of hokey. And yeah, you're right. There's nothing that they could have done. I was just surprised because I expected to see a longer tail for Mr. Big on mainstream rock radio after this happened, especially since. And here's where we get to their their longevity elsewhere, uh, especially considering that they stayed on Atlantic throughout the entire 1990s they everybody else got dropped but long yeah. after american consumers stopped thinking about mr big they still had a record deal only other band that i can think of that stuck around like that was firehouse they, who lingered on epic for some reason until you know the late 90s they were big in japan that was their sort of saving grace they were the the you know the funny thing that the term big in japan i don't i don't think it applies to really anyone more than mr big <laughs> maybe cheap, cheap cheap trick but cheap trick could still sell records here albeit to you know diminishing returns throughout their career but even today they could probably sell more records than mr big could but mr big in japan i i remember it's funny you know the things the internet serves you if you go and look in the early aughts, mid aughts, Japan had these like guitar hero TV shows where they would have people come on and essentially they would throw the most obscure and then the biggest things at guitar players. I'm like, oh, play Crazy Train, play this, play that. Paul Gilbert is on scads of these because Paul Gilbert has lived in Japan, fluently speaks Japanese, like can 100% hang. As can Marty Friedman, which is kind of funny. You know, they have that shared history. And if you can ever find it, it is hilarious. You watch them do these guitar battles, and and it's they are literally like superheroes, you know, doing battle for guitar riffs and, and speaking Japanese. And you're like, love their subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> they're yeah, they're not the only, they're not the only group in that vein. Yeah, that that maintain popularity in Japan after they kind of died out here. I mean, I, I think of Night Ranger, 
Mm-hmm. I think Japan mm-hmm. was the entire reason the Night Ranger got back together in the late 90s. But I, I feel like it had to have been to a greater extent. For one thing, they like I said, they 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 held on to their record deal for yeah. a decade after their time ran out here. And uh, also, if you look at, we know Wikipedia lies, but if you look at their discography page, I think even their most recent studio album went top 10 in Japan. And a lot of them went gold or platinum in Japan, whatever. Yeah. I don't know what that means in terms yeah. of copies sold. but I, I mean, I think that... I, I I can't explain it, but I just want I just think that <laughs> I, I think that part of it. I mean, a big a big part of it might just be the the combined musicianship is still just something that brings people out. And like Eric Martin's voice is just it's so great. I mean, it really has just such a strength to it, and it really it's very compelling. And I was really surprised. I mean, I I will say like I was very surprised by re listening and and re listening to this record just how strong his voice was. Because like you think you talk, people talk about Mr. Big, they'll talk about Billy Sheehan first. They'll talk about Paul Gilbert second, right? And it really was you know the sum of the parts that made the band what it was. Were you aware of him prior to Mr. No. Big? Like okay, no. I wondered if maybe uh, any of those soundtrack songs. No, that was uh, before I started working at the bakery. So <laughs> <laughs> I can't even remember which soundtracks he was on but i do know like he i think he was supposed to be uh, supposedly he was invited to join toto at one point oh. i i can't remember if it was after fergie frederickson was fired or after joseph williams was fired but supposedly he was invited to join that group and also isn't there i think he was supposedly uh, supposed to be invited to join chicago after peter Cetera left oh, wow. okay. and then van halen yeah I would have uh, made for some different. I wonder if they would have still used the same album title for their 1991 album had uh, had Eric Martin been the singer because he seems to like a pun. But I don't know if he likes the <laughs> raunchy puns. Well, so where do we think these guys fall in the the? The big picture of what happened at the format. What we've talked about with the first couple of episodes is whether the failure of the album that we're talking about was a bellwether for what was about to happen. I mean, first we talked about David Lee Roth's A Little Ain't Enough. You know, that came out in January, had a hit single-ish, and then it it tanked. Uh, And then we talked about Chicago 21, which, you know, they, they had been on a pretty big roll and then it just came to a screeching halt. It's a little different with this record because even though it came out in March of 91, I don't really think it sold much of anything until it had been out for almost a year. Yeah. To be with you didn't, didn't, didn't hit until 92. So right. it had like a full time to bake before and, and in that time, right, was, was when the trouble started. <laughs> <laughs> the trouble started. <laughs> the trouble started. Yeah. It's it's weird because I, you know, as I was, as I was kind of putting things together, and and even in listening to prior episodes, thinking about kind of that that weird juxtaposition that we were all in, where a lot of us were like, you know, we were listening to Nine Inch Nails, we were listening to Nirvana, we were listening to Soundgarden, and you know, and then Pearl Jam, Nirvana, eventually later, but. Like they all peacefully coexisted on our radios for a long time. 
it was okay if you listened to Extreme and Nirvana and yeah. and listened to you know Winger and Metallica and Megadeth. Like it's weird because I feel like in the early to mid eighties there was a lot of that like classism amongst genre fans, right? You're not really metal unless you listen to Slayer and and then you've got, you know, the hair bands and you got this and you got that. Like I, I feel like 91, 92 was where all of that just started to flatten. And it was, yeah, I listened to Phil Collins and I listened to Eric Clapton and I listened to Queensryche and I listened to uh, Metallica and yeah, I like Megadeth and, <laughs> you know, and I'll listen to Mr. Big and I'll listen to the Black Crows and I listened to Tribe Called Quest and Prince too, but hey, <laughs> you know, like, I think it became more and more and more acceptable. I mean, I know I was personally, I always felt like a little weird because I had like, I had my metalhead friend. I had like the two nerdy alt guys that I could talk about Ned's Atomic Dustbin with. And then I had like, and this is going to sound wrong, but I had like all my girlfriends who I could talk about hair metal with. <laughs> and that was kind of like those were those dividing lines like you just had different things you could plug into different places but the the one thing i will say is that all of my musician friends all of my music nerd friends we were listening to everything yeah like we would listen michael jackson like it didn't matter it was music it was Something to consume and learn and 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 grow from, and that's why I think the guys like the Wingers, the Mister Bigs, like I think that's why they were able to float for a little bit longer than maybe the the Warrants and the Poisons, and there was more fluff there, and clearly not as much musicality as like the Mister Bigs, where you're like, oh, you know. It's an acoustic song, uh, and I'll pick on To Be With You, because it could exist at the same moment as Smells Like Teen Spirit, because, yeah, it was just an acoustic song with harmonies, and it didn't offend my parents, and Toad the Wet Sprocket could have sang it if they wanted to. and <laughs> Like, it played it played to a lot of different, uh, a wider audience than I think um, some of the other ballads of the time. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think also what happened in that kind of period that began in fall of 91 and then stretched on was talking, somebody was talking earlier about how a lot of the hard rock guys were older. And I think mm. that there was also a shift toward like appealing, you know, the, the kind of beginning of the, we have to appeal to the nuts and gum crowd ideal of, you know, young men who had a lot to get off their chest. The nuts and gum crowd. I love that. <laughs> um, but, but I think that, you know, hair metal or hard rock or whatever you want to call it became this kind of like amalgamated genre that was more than just bands that sounded like Motley Crue and looked like Motley Crue. It was, you know, it was bands like Tesla. It was bands like, who I think are another example of like the musicianship resulting in sticking around longer. It was bands like Enough's Enough. It was bands like LA Guns and even like, you know, Love Hate, 
got lumped into that when they had why do you think they call it dope hit big on dial on a dial on tv like you had this kind of thing where it was a lot of people who their their attitude was even even when they were being scuzzy like love hate or la guns both of my love they were still a they were still like coming from like a slightly older place and they were still kind of like excited about it and the i think that you know even though i mean kurt cobain was really funny eddie vetter was really funny but like the you know the the kind of version of alternative rock that you saw in the bands that came after the initial wave that was sort of the you know marketers idea of what rock should be and i think that that like outward facing not happy face but like outward facing sort of like positivity is was something that went away with this shift and it became more of like a kick the can down the street kind of thing which was why metallica fit in you know which is why like like well no because like that's why like ballad (laughs) metallica fit in because like nothing else matters is like the ultimate gen (laughs) x whatever statement you know and so it it became this you know and i mean i think that's why country kind of like the bro country movement of 20 years later like really took hold the way that it did because it was create it was filling this void that people were like oh yeah like this reminds me of nothing but a good time by poison not just in like the anthemic (laughs) chorus but in the way that it makes me feel i think that's very astute yeah and i vividly remember that that period in the early 90s when it seemed like everybody was sad or angry on the radio and yeah being a little older felt like my concept of rock is that it's for entertainment and everyone, like nobody seems to want to have fun anymore. What's going on? <laughs> I think your point is, is valid, Michael. I agree with you that there was a time in late 91, early 92, when everything was allowed to coexist. But I, I think that tribalism set back in pretty quickly. I mean, if not, if it hadn't happened that way, then Warrant would have held on to their record deal longer than they did, you know? I think late 91 would have been when To Be With You started to take off. This is nostalgia talking, but almost kind of like a, a golden moment. You know, there, there was a paradigm shift starting to happen, but nobody was really being punished for it yet. So <laughs> you, you, you had a little bit of a melting pot happening. Everybody was racing to get that record out that, that you know, didn't, didn't have the sheen on it anymore. You know, you think about that that first batch of post Nirvana, post Pearl Jam rock records that all of a sudden everybody dropped their Ibanezes and picked up Fenders and Les Pauls and started. Uh, and sorry for being really nerdy there, but uh, yeah. talking <laughs> about Mr. Big. No, yeah, it's great. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. We're talking about Mr. Big. People know what Ibanez is. <laughs> would you Would you say that it became a dog eat dog world at that point? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, Michael, you mentioned you played out. You played this song live a lot. I did. I did. I was, that was my, my late high school band. We would, we would absolutely devour and play with it, whatever. So at that point in our repertoire, like we were playing 
rocking in the free world and enter Sandman right alongside playing to be with you, which was a challenge um, for me at the time uh, because I, one, didn't have an acoustic guitar. And two, <laughs> there's that there's that point in the song where Mr. Gilbert picks up and plucks his low E so hard that it knocks it straight out of tune every single time. Oh my um, gosh. And, and, and I very quickly had to purchase and install a locking nut so that I could stay in tune. <laughs> Cause there's nothing worse when everybody's singing and your, your lead singer looks and back at you like, you're out of tune, asshole. <laughs> so can we imagine a world in which these guys were a platinum act longer than they were? Do you think they had it in them? I want to bring up another factor in this because when I think of AOR, I think of WBAB, which is still broadcasting on Long Island, 102.3. And it was, you know, the, the rock station of Long Island. But over the years, its playlist has kind of calcified. And like, the, mm. you know, it, it would still like get the lead out every day and it would still play new, it would still like sponsor when Motley Crue and Warren played at the Nassau Coliseum. But the thing was like, it felt like at the same time with all of these newer acts that were operating in a completely different mode, it did feel like a lot of AOR stations were also playing up the, the huge back catalogs they had. Do you all think part of the reason for the shift is not just classic rock, which, you know, had developed as a format years earlier, but just rock in general had just become so big and laden with history that it was like if we have the choice of playing like some new band that might make listeners tune out or panama we're gonna play panama <laughs> you know and yeah. i was i was wondering if that was also like if, if that could if part of the shift in this radio could be just because like i've noticed also with the i live in boston and the classic rock station up here wzlx you know they've started introducing like Stone Temple Pilots into the playlist and like Red Hot Chili Peppers, which, ugh. but, but at the same time, like they, the only songs from the hard rock era that they'll touch are like Love in an Elevator, Janie's Got a Gun, and Guns N' Roses songs. No Motley Crue, no Warren, not even Signs by Tesla, which would fit in, you know, I think with like a classic rock ideal. And so I'm wondering if, the looking back that happened on Green Tinted Sixties Mind and, you know, in like the covers that were becoming very popular, like Cats in the Cradle by Ugly Kid Joe, if those were also a contributing if like the 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 weight of history was becoming a contributing factor to these newer artists having like success beyond, you know, their one or two big songs. I think that's a great I think that's a great observation. You have a lot more experience in radio. Than I do. I mean, you you probably have experience with this type of focus group bullshit firsthand. That my only stint at radio was a brief period of time in the in the mid nineties when I had an overnight show and spent it doing everything they told us not to do, and was fired on the air. Oh Maybe gosh. that ties into what you're talking about. <laughs> like, you know, the, <laughs> The, the the idea is just to give the people what they want and what they want is more of what they know. Yep. Yeah, I, I think about so I had two friends. 
one who still, and I won't name him because one of them is still a very popular regional DJ <laughs> at one of these monolithic rock stations mm. in the Hudson Valley, New York. I remember, you know, we would we would try to sneak stuff in all the time. And he, he at the time, was running the overnight. So we'd always come in and we were young. Like, dude, don't, 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 don't play that Pink Floyd song again. Here, play, play, play this. Stone Temple Pilots, like that perfect example. That radio station to this day exists. They still play those same monolithic. It's classic rock if it was recorded before 1984, yeah. right? Right. And 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 if it wasn't, you're not allowed in. You're not allowed in the club. If and, and I think you're right. If they had embraced and kind of brought in. The hey guys, come and play. Come and play on our side of the pool because you know we can we can make a little room, right? Yeah, it it, it might have changed things if if there was a rally around that. But I think that the crowd at the time, and I, and I think about it like my you know my parents would be listening to that station. They didn't want to hear the shit I was listening to, even if it sounded exactly like what they were listening to. <laughs> Yeah, right. The, the 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 paradox of parental of introducing music to your parents. Oh, this reminds you of the Beatles. No, but it's not them. It's not yeah. them. I got that a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> exactly. Well, and the weird thing is, is, is I think a lot of them embraced like the Pearl Jams and the stuff because, like, oh well, that sounds kind of like Led Zeppelin, and it kind of sounds, you know, because it was stripped back, it was less produced, less sheen. And, and and I think there was an embracement of that generation to some of that music. I keep waiting for rock, classic rock, to have. I'm going to call it a. I think the the usefulness of this term has has, has kind of kind of passed. But years ago, there was a, a there was a small moment when Marvel Comics, you know, they made they made Thor. Thor was a woman. The Hulk was an Asian kid. They were doing all this stuff with their entrenched heroes to. Um, I'm sure it was a cynical play to expand their readership. But when that happened, I was still writing for Ultimate Classic Rock, and I would always talk to my editor at the time and say, Classic Rock needs to have like a Marvel moment. You know, they need to there's so much music that fits the the expectations of this formula and this format that is being made by people who don't look or sound like the folks that are allowed within the format as it exists right now. And if you let them in, I feel like, you know, this format that has trapped itself in amber for the last 20 years could potentially have a whole second life. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Instead, we get Greta Van Fleet. (laughs) Instead, we get Greta Van Fleet, right? Which, you know, they're not Led Zeppelin. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think even it's so funny if you think about what women get played on classic rock radio, not money. I think it's the Wilson sisters and Joan Jett and not and like even somebody like Janis Joplin, who's such a, you know, storied figure. If you listen to ZLX for, you know, a week, you would not maybe hear her in like an ad. You know, somebody was like, take a piece of our hearts with this sale on cars, you know, something like that. but i think that it problem is like it's a it's a catch-22 because i think the appeal of the format is its conservatism in that it's some it's like 
the brawnier, the brawny version of the music you can listen to at work. Even if like <laughs> some of those songs are, when you listen to them, you're like, wait, why are we listening to this in 2021 for a second? It is, you know, it's, it's familiar. And, and I think that that for radio, which has become ever more conservative with its consolidation and everything, it's, that's an important factor, especially now with like music radio, just being more and more in peril on the FM dial where, you know, all these radio companies are like, well, sports talk, let's, let's do another five sports talk stations on FM. Goodbye to all this, you know, or Ryan Seacrest. I mean, it's, (sighs) it's, (laughs) it's really stuck in the middle with Pink Floyd. Yeah. <clears throat> well, sorry to be a downer. No, no, no. Get, I think getting the let out. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I think completely accurate. It totally ties in with everything that this show is meant to talk about. I have I have kept you guys just about long enough, but I do want to uh, whenever we whenever we can I'll read a review of the album that we're talking about that was written at the time. Entertainment Weekly was kind enough to write up lean into it in their uh, February 14th, 1992 issue. And they talk about how this record covers all the hard rock bases in search of a hit with lively gutsy tunes like Never Say Never, mellow radio-friendly number in Lucky This Time, and the weepily romantic Just Take My Heart. And they mention the instrumental fanciness. Of course, they, they, they have to mention the cordless drills. But then they, they finish off and they say, Lean Into It was released last March, but none of these tricks was able to keep it on the charts until the recent release of the single To Be With You. The simple little ballad features acoustic guitar and hand clap percussion and is by far the best song on the album. So much for formulas and fretwork. Hey, boys. And uh, <laughs> that is a C-plus review for Lean Into It from Entertainment Weekly. Wow. It's yeah. a low grade. <laughs> I would give it a B. I would give it, yeah, give it a, a B. solid B. Yeah. yeah. Solid B. I agree. I agree. Well, thank you both for taking an hour out of your afternoon to talk about Lean Into It and Mr. Big and AOR and all the stuff that we covered here. I appreciate it. And I've had a lot of fun talking to both of you. Thanks. This was awesome. I, I had a great time. Next month, neither of these fine people will be with me, but we'll be talking about an album that it included, I think, at least eight members of a band that has included probably 30 members throughout its inexplicably long career. We'll see if you can figure that out before next time. Anyway, thank you, and talk to you later. <laughs>